This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. At the risk of sounding a bit oddball, something uh, we're generally not afraid of on this program, I'd like to start by pointing out that it is sometimes difficult to know where to begin if you'd like to produce a radio hour. There are so many ways to go. Imagine, dear listener, you wanted to invite people into your home to sit down in your living room, at which point you were going to hold forth for the next hour on something. The question is, where to begin? Given that your choices are basically infinite. Many years ago when we began this program, an anecdote was passed along to us by a person who was very helpful in our early days. Steve Hoffman was his name. Steve dabbled in in, in radio and, and television both. And man, he sure had a great voice for it. He told us a story back in the day about how he purchased an hour on some radio venue. I don't remember the details. How he'd set out to to talk for an hour, that was his plan, and he worked through in his mind uh, many of the topics he wanted to go through. I'm quite sure this was a live broadcast. He started out pretty well, he thought, talked through the subjects, went through them one by one, and then when he was finished, he looked up at the clock to observe that he'd now used up five minutes of his allotted hour. The way he described it, the following 55 minutes was a pretty unhappy experience for him, and we presume the audience. Mr. Mellon thinks that the person who holds the record for the most number of appearances on Radio Parallax, our good friend Sean Minton, always impressed us by the fact that he did three hours a day of sports-themed radio, I believe up in Washington State, did that five days a week, and he did it live. Now, we're pretty sure that if you're going to do something like that, you, you're, you're bound to get a little repetitive. And you're, and you're going to have to rely on every trick in the book to stretch things. You know, put a proposition out there and say, hey, how about that? <laughs> and invite callers to weigh in. Anyway, taking a look at what's in the news of late, as we now are in December of the year 2020, well, there's just, there just doesn't appear to be any shortage of material. We like to think that two of the best hours we've ever done in this program were in the last month, both with Greg Pallast and Stephen J. Harper talking about electoral politics here in America. For the past nine months, we've had no shortage of material regarding the COVID pandemic. But I got to say, it was nice to take a break from that on last week's program and just talk about lighter things. Pleased to report I received an email from an old colleague of mine who, who reported favorably on our Thanksgiving show. He seemed, I think, glad we'd gotten away from politics and COVID, at least somewhat. He pointed out, and I'd have to agree with him, that some of the high comedy involved in last week's program and excerpting from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, well, some of it was quite memorable. And yes, we do hope to make use of that Polish expression, which came up in that segment. Not my circus, not my monkeys. I think it's probably worth mentioning that my my former colleague pointed out that he enjoys listening to the program and has, has does so on a regular basis, and thought, you know, he ought to contribute to it. <laughs> which, which, you know, not to mention it, I think a pretty good idea. There is a provision for you to do so, dear listener, on our website at radioparallax.com. And uh, we hope that, uh, that, that some of you will, will follow um, Joel's lead on this particular matter. 
even if, in this particular case, uh, he and, and, and you, who would follow in his, in his footsteps, are indeed making this your circus and your monkeys. Yes, and thank you, Mr. Millen, for that little musical cue, which, in case you didn't recognize it, was from the Rolling Stones' Monkey Man from Let It Bleed, I believe it is. That, uh, that Polish proverb does remind us of one from the Portuguese, which yours truly has been meaning to have made up into a placard to go out in my pool house. Need to add that to the list of holiday tasks. The Portuguese proverb in question states, All visits bring pleasure. If not the arrival, the departure. Now, we must confess, it looks as though we are going to head for a holiday hiatus on this program. Radio Parallax is heard on at least two terrestrial radio stations. We have been on KDVS since 2002. But it appears that faced with various problems related to COVID and moving the station, that KDVS is expected to go dark for several weeks, late in December and I presume in early January. So, to those of you who listen to us in the Sacramento area, you're going to have to rely upon RadioParallax.com exclusively. And it appears that up in Chico, the good people at KZFR are electing to go with some locally produced programming starting next week on the Thursday time slot, which we have been occupying. It has been our great privilege to be a part of KZFR since, I believe, 2008. But given the current plan to move us to a Monday slot and, and, and I believe shortening the show to just one segment, well, that will indeed be the plan for the next few weeks. But because we have so much that we need to get done in the next couple of months, Mr. Millen and I are probably going to cut back our production to, I'm guessing, one or two programs in January and February. Mr. Millen insists they will be great programs. We're not going to mail anything in. Anyway, that's how it's shaping up. We, we think that we will probably resume normal broadcasts in March. There's a couple of projects we're going to devote a lot of time to in December, January, and February, which we hope will perk things up considerably come March. Since we do talk about anything that we feel like talking about in this program, I do want to voice one objection. A couple of decades ago, someone came up with the term Black Friday to describe the awful events that take place in America the day after Thanksgiving when, you know, people arrive at Best Buy, line up, and then storm inside the store, trampling people and beating others up to, you know, grab electronics. For some reason, this year, everyone's decided that Black Friday is a term you can apply to anything and everything to do with commerce. And man, we are sick of it. Then maybe what we ought to do is just designate Today's program is our special Black Friday edition. We'd like to point out that if you listen today, you can save up to 75%. Why stop there? If you listen today, you can save up to 175%. Bunch of nonsense. And speaking of nonsense, I'm looking at the current edition of The Week magazine, and I gotta say, sometimes they cut to the chase. The current edition shows Donald Trump in some sort of bizarre military uniform surrounded by two people dressed as clowns, one of whom is clearly Rudy Giuliani. The title was The Failed Coup, Have Trump and His Clownish Lawyers Damaged Democracy? Well, it appears that the answer currently is no, but that's 
not necessarily for lack of trying. We hope you have checked out uh, our affiliated website, trumppandemic.net, where we have tried to document the response and lack of response that's taken place in this country over the past few months as regarding the pandemic. That whole story continues to be one giant tale of woe. Steve Call weighed in on some of this in The New Yorker, noting that the sheer theatricality of Trump's refusal to concede is a distraction from his failure once again to take the coronavirus pandemic seriously. Last week, and this is referring to a couple weeks back, the country set a new daily record for infections, more than 160,000, and hospitals also reached a new high after doubling during the past month. If you're keeping score, hospitalizations in America doubled during the interval between November 1st and December 1st, and tripled during the interval between October 1st and December 1st. Not to say that uh, Team Trump has not been busy. They've been on a a firing binge across the federal government, while also spending a lot of time trying to get people put into civil service positions, which will make them hard for Biden to fire if he doesn't like them. I want to say about that in a minute. But the good news is that in the last week, the United States Attorney General William Barr has declared that the U.S. Justice Department has uncovered no evidence of widespread voter fraud that could change the outcome of the 2020 election. When a guy like William Barr has jumped ship on the Trump administration, you know that, uh, well, it appears we've, we've dodged a bullet. Although I do want to stress the word appears. Several weeks ago in this program, we mentioned why it was we were deeply afraid of what might happen in the wake of the election. And yes, we've covered the topic of voter suppression and how the vote count was manipulated in this country. In spite of what William Barr says, um, I think there was quite a bit of manipulation that, that went on, just not in a direction that favored Joe Biden. And again, we refer you back to our interview with Greg Palace three weeks ago. We also talked about the legal options available to the president, which involved basically just going around the election and directly appealing to um, state legislators in Michigan in particular that might conceivably appoint their own slate of electors and validating the vote count. That all appears to be fading away. But we, again, would refer you back to our interview with Stephen Harper from two weeks ago. We're very pleased with both of those chats we had. But as I say, several weeks back, we mentioned why it was we were afraid, and this goes beyond the things we've already talked about, and uh, settles in on the topic of COG, continuity of government. And I guess there's no better time than the present to cite the article currently in Harper's Magazine by Andrew Cockburn, titled, The Enemy's Briefcase. Let's take five or six minutes and do this. Said Cockburn, a few hours before the inauguration ceremony, the prospective president receives an elaborate and highly classified briefing on the means and procedures for blowing up the world with a nuclear attack, a rite of passage that a former official describes as a sobering moment. Secret though it may be, we are at least aware that this introduction to apocalypse takes place. At some point in the first term, however, experts surmise that an even more secret briefing occurs, one that has never been publicly acknowledged. In it, the new president learns how to blow up the Constitution. The session introduces, quote, the Presidential Emergency Actions Documents, unquote, or PEADS, P-E-A-D-S, orders that authorize a broad range of mortal assaults on our civil liberties. 
In the words of a rare declassified official description, the documents outline how to implement extraordinary presidential authority in response to extraordinary situations by imposing martial law, suspending habeas corpus, seizing control of the internet, imposing censorship, and incarcerating so-called subversives, among other repressive measures. Joel McCleary, a White House official in the Carter administration, told Cockburn, we know about the nuclear briefcase that carries the launch codes. But over at the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, there's a list of so-called enemies of the state who would be rounded up in an emergency. I've heard it called the enemies briefcase. Notes Cockburn, these chilling directives have been silently proliferating since the days of the Cold War as an integral part of the hugely elaborate and expensive Continuity of Government, COG program, a mechanism to preserve state authority, complete with well-provisioned underground bunkers for leaders in the event of a nuclear holocaust. Compiled without any authorization from Congress, the emergency provisions long escaped public discussion. That is, until Donald Trump started to brag about them. Trump boasted last March, I have the right to do a lot of things that people don't even know about ominously echoing his interpretation of Article 2 of the Constitution, which he claimed gives him, quote, the right to do whatever I want as president. Notes Cockburn, he's also declared his absolute right to build a border wall, whatever Congress thinks, and even floated the possibility of delaying the election, quote, until people can properly, securely, and safely vote, unquote. Notes Elizabeth Goitin, the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at NYU's Brennan Center for Justice, this really is one of the best-kept secrets in Washington. Though the PEDs are secret from the American public, they're not secret from the White House and from the executive branch. And the fact that none of them has ever been leaked is really quite extraordinary. Goyton and her colleagues have been working diligently for years to elicit the truth about the president's hidden legal armory, tracing stray references in declassified documents and obscure appropriations requests from previous administrations. At least in the past, said Goitin, there were documents that purported to authorize actions that are unconstitutional, that are not justified by any existing law, and that's why we need to be worried about them. It's a powerful article. I recommend it highly. It goes back to the early 70s when there was some effort to uncover some of these machinations. Congress did investigate the CIA and FBI back in the early 70s under committees headed in the Senate by Frank Church and in the House by Representative Otis Pike. And as regards the FBI part of that, I'm currently reading the book The Burglary by Betty Metzger. It's been sitting on my shelf for too long. I picked it up the other day and noted that Dan Ellsberg on the cover had said, the book is astonishingly good. The best book I read about either the anti-war movement or Hoover's FBI, a masterpiece. And I have to say, I'm about a tenth of the way into it, and I have to agree with Dan Ellsberg. It is a marvelous piece of work. Since we're going to produce a 28-minute segment specifically for our good friends up in Chico, I think we're going to devote most of it to that book. Call it a book review. But back to the Cockburn piece. It turns out that when Otis Pike and Frank Church were looking into these matters, some of this stuff about continuity of government did emerge, just a bit of it. The fascinating thing about this is that over the years, as, as there have been various emergency decrees put forth, well, none of them ever sunsetted. None of them went away. Cochran was informed by someone who worked in the church committee that the first problem faced by the committee was to find out what emergency powers existed. 
1973 report read, This has been a most difficult task. Nowhere in government was there a complete catalog detailing these emergency laws, which were buried within the vast body of laws passed since the first Congress. Many were aware that there had been a delegation of an enormous amount of power, but how much power, nobody knew. The committee staff had resigned themselves to poring over all 87 volumes of the statutes at large, the record of all laws and resolutions passed by Congress, then they discovered a shortcut. As part of their COG arrangements, the United States Air Force had digitized the whole thing. They had it on a computer tape buried inside a mountain, NORAD headquarters outside Colorado Springs, in case of nuclear war. Using the digitized records, aides searched for keywords that might have been used when describing extraordinary powers. The opening paragraph of the committee's initial report made their findings clear. Quote, a majority of Americans alive today have lived all their lives under emergency rule. For 40 years, freedoms and government procedures guaranteed by the Constitution have, in varying degrees, been abridged by laws brought into force by states of national emergency. Notes Cockburn. In addition to Johnson's use of Truman's Korean War powers, the committee noted that FDR had relied on an old wartime measure introduced by Woodrow Wilson in 1917 to close the banks in 1933 in response to the Depression. To his amusement, one aide discovered that a Civil War emergency law enabling cavalry in the Western Plains to buy forage for their horses had been used to skirt Congress in financing the war in Vietnam. Before the committee's investigation, no one had realized that, quote, temporary, unquote, states of emergency could become permanent. The committee concluded that a president could seize property and commodities, seize control of transport and communications, organize and control the means of production, assign military forces abroad, and restrict travel, a state of affairs the committee reasonably described as dangerous. But notes Cockburn, as ominous as the committee's discoveries may have been, they received scant media attention, lacking the sex appeal of assassination plots, poison dart guns, or White House liaisons with the mafia. It's worth taking a look at this. Cockburn points out later in the article that, as I previously reported in Harper's, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which operates under a 1977 law, can freeze an American's bank account while offering nothing more than a vague explanation. And jumping near the conclusion of the article, it was noted that last June, Joel McCleary, that White House official from the Carter administration, along with Mark Medish, a senior National Security Council director under Bill Clinton, joined former Senators Gary Hart and former Senator Tim Wirth to warn in Politico that in the event of a national emergency on the grounds of national security, the president would have more than 120 statute emergency powers at his disposal, potentially enabling him to postpone the election. Medish told Cockburn back in June, it looks as though a rolling coup is underway with Trump and his Confederates testing the water for ways to scupper the election. Well, as we all know, that didn't happen. But in the seven weeks we have left to us before the presumptive Biden inauguration on January 20th, well, first of all, we hope that Donald Trump isn't listening. We know he's not a big reader, so he probably missed some of this in the briefings he was given. But darn it. We, we don't want to give him any ideas, but uh, seriously, folks, as they say, uh, it, this has probably already occurred to him. If it hasn't occurred to him, it has certainly occurred to some of the people around him who have his ear. Last time we checked, Joe Biden was just knocking on the door of 81 million votes, but then Donald Trump has topped 74 million himself. 
Still, that's a 7 million vote differential, a difference of 4.4%. Most people would call that pretty definitive, but then, you know, most people are not Donald J. Trump. We must confess, after our conversation with Greg Palast a few weeks back, that we're astonished to see Trump attacking Brian Kemp in Georgia. I have in my left hand, I have in my left hand a Doonesbury cartoon from the summer. Gary Trudeau has relied upon a cartoon character of a crow to symbolize um, the Jim Crow laws in the South that have excluded blacks from voting ever since the Reconstruction. In the first panel of this Doonesbury column, which I think is worth touching upon, the crow says, hey folks, Jimmy Crow here. Want to know who my personal hero is? Nope, not the president. It's Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Now, most people only know Brian Kemp from his deadly response to the pandemic. And they have Kemp saying, open the bars, back to school, whatever Trump says. Third panel, Crow says, but for eight years, he's also been the prince of purges, disqualifying 334,000 eligible voters prior to his, quote, election, unquote. Want more details? Check out his full record of voter suppression on Wikipedia. Warning, though, the entry's really long. We're looking forward to bringing Greg Palast on again soon to talk about this ironic turn of events. Some Trump aides have been urging a boycott down in Georgia of Republicans to show their disapproval of how the election's been carried on down there. And boy, for once, we are in complete agreement with those folks. That is a great idea. Georgia Republicans, stay home. We also hope in the next week or two to bring on uh, social activist Nancy Yamada, who is apparently directly involved in those efforts to turn the vote out in Georgia, countering those efforts that have been so, <laughs> so avidly pursued by Brian Kemp over the years. But no, I just, it just, it's, politics is, is amazing. The Georgia Republicans are angry and they now want to challenge Brian Kemp in the primaries in 2022 to see if they can oust him from the governorship. Why? Because he hasn't done what Donald Trump wanted him to do, invalidate the Georgia election. To his credit, uh, Kemp couldn't come up with a reason to do so. We also find it ironic that the Secretary of State who supervises the election, Raffelsberger, whatever his name is, uh, is also under attack from the Republicans for not doing enough to stymie the election. This is a guy that Greg Palast sued years ago for his efforts to disenfranchise black voters in the state. Wow. Anyway, we were pretty nervous a few weeks back when we saw those changes taking place at the Pentagon. But it's, it's not clear it's being done in the systematic way that it would need to be to engineer a coup d'etat via the Pentagon. By the way, the guy that's doing all this firing in the executive branch is a 30-year-old guy named John McEntee. Who's John McEntee? Well, according to the Washington Post, McEntee worked for the Trump at his organization in New York and the presidential campaign. After the 2016 election, according to the tell-all book by Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, the former aide to the First Lady, McAtee happened to be delivering a turkey sandwich when Winston Wolkoff informed Trump that his inauguration committee was a, well, S followed by four letters, show. Donald, according to Wolkoff, grabbed the sandwich bag and told the kid to sit down. You're in charge of the inauguration now, he said. McEntee soon became the president's trusted personal aide, accompanying him on the golf course, watching TV off the Oval Office, and carrying his large box of papers onto Air Force One. Officials described him as jovial and omnipresent, but not particularly influential. 
In 2018, McAtee was ousted by then-Chief of Staff John Kelly, who discovered that he had, well, a gambling habit. Kelly had McAtee escorted out of the West Wing, a move that enraged many Trump loyalists. Chris Ruddy, a close Trump friend, said the president values him as a very trusted, very loyal man. Trump rehired McAtee in the weeks after the impeachment process when he'd been frustrated to see federal officials testify against him. And he granted McAtee wide latitude to make personnel changes. According to McAtee, I'm only here for the president, and I'm not afraid to fire people. His office launched an interview process to suss out disloyalty, disloyalty to Donald Trump, asking who on your team is good, who on your team is bad, who is not working to serve the president's agenda. What do you think of a particular policy? People familiar with the interview said Trump appointees wanted names of people perceived as disloyal. One Environmental Protection Agency employee was asked his opinion on pulling troops out of Afghanistan. Said the startled official, I work at the EPA. Now, we don't want to completely minimize this. This article in the Post notes that at the Pentagon, the recently fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper mostly stayed quiet as a series of mid-level political appointees were ushered out, were ushered out by the White House over the past year. There's been a lot of talk in recent weeks about how Donald Trump may fire FBI Director Christopher Wray and CIA Director Gina Haspel. It does appear that he's given up on trying to fire Anthony Fauci. We do note that late in October, Trump signed an executive order described by CNN as fit for banana republic, which reclassified more than 100,000 federal employees involved in policymaking so they can be fired without cause like political appointees. That change is set to take effect on the eve of January's presidential inauguration. It would let Trump get rid of all the scientists, medical experts, foreign policy experts, and regulators of all kinds and pack the federal workforce with partisan sycophants and stooges. And apparently if you do this, it's not simply a matter of Biden coming in and reversing it once you become a, if this passes, uh, who knows, uh, if this becomes law and these appointees gain civil service protection, well, it's, it's just that much harder to remove them. Anyway, there's a lot of talk of holding Trump accountable for what he has done. Uh, our website again, trumppandemic.net, outlines in great detail the sheer volume of Americans who are now deceased and who have now been injured thanks to the counterproductive policies of the Trump administration. He did not follow the advice of health experts. We have paid the penalty for that. We think he needs to be held accountable as a private citizen come January. Those who would agree with that may take some solace in the fact that former French President Nicolas Sarkozy went on trial in France this week on charges of corruption and influence peddling stemming from his 2007 to 2012 term in office. So, it is done. It can be done. On the other hand, Attorney General William Barr has given extra protection to the prosecutor he appointed to investigate the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. Yes, apparently U.S. Attorney John Durham, who bears a remarkable resemblance to Vladimir Lenin, has been given special privileges to involve these alleged uh, improprieties at the FBI, which, which, which dared to investigate Trump and Russia. And, of course, there's, a, there's the question of pardons. Donald Trump's apparently mulling whether to pardon his children and Rudy Giuliani. This prompted Andy Borowitz to weigh in with the following. With fewer than 50 days until the inauguration, the White House is facing the daunting task of distributing thousands of pardons to those who are desperately in need. In an effort to ensure an orderly rollout, the Trump administration announced that the first recipients would be essential frontline criminals. 
According to the announcement, essential frontline criminals include all White House staffers and cabinet members who have spent the past four years receiving improper emoluments, destroying evidence, and subverting democracy. The announcement raised concerns among frontline criminals who fear their swelling numbers believed to be 